Welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. Well, you might recognize that uh, this voice is not Ingrid Cochran. However, this is Matthew Portell, the co-host. I am the director of Communities with Paces Connection. Like all of us humans, uh, Ingrid is enjoying some time off on a vacation, and she certainly deserves it with all the amazing work she puts in. So it's just going to be me today with our guest. And as you already know, it is the time of year that in previous years, as most of you know, I left education to come work with PACES um, for the, the greater impact. But for the last 15 years, these last couple weeks uh, would have been the start of school for me in some capacity. So it's definitely different for me in the new role of not having that start of school feel. And I don't know, I can't tell you what feeling it is because there's a lot of them. Uh, but the reason we're kind of talking to guests this month about back to school is because it is that time of year. But we also are looking at the impact, especially in the recent years of COVID-19. Um, as a principal, I can tell you the the roller coaster that that was. But without my school nurse, I can't imagine what that would have been like. The continuous school shootings, the affirmation of LBGTQ students, institutional racism, cr- the fight against what people are calling critical race theory in schools, which we know is not teacher burnout and parents' rights are becoming a cultural battleground in education. And so this week's guest, um, I, I followed her work for a long time, Robin Kogan, and she has so many letters behind her name because she does amazing work, but she has her uh, she has her master's in education. She's an RN. She's a national certified school nurse. She's in her 22nd year as an uh, as a New Jersey school nurse in Camden City School District. Uh, she has helped in, as a director of the New Jersey State School Nurse Association. I mean, she has done it all. She even helps uh, or actually teaches in the school nurse certification program at Rutgers University. And she has a very popular blog. And what a name of a blog, Robin. Relentless, the relentless school nurse. I mean, I love that word because I think uh, identify as an unapologetic disruptor, which I think goes right along with that relentless nurse. So, Robin, welcome to the History, Culture, and Trauma podcast. We are really excited to talk to you, especially given what has happened in, in the recent past and what is currently happened. So welcome to the show and, and tell us the Robin story. So first of all, thank you. Thank you, Matthew, for that great introduction. Uh, yeah, nurses love lots of initials after our names. Uh, and yes, they are earned, so I do wear them proudly. But let me just remind everyone that we are about to enter our fourth school year impacted by COVID. That is a stunning statistic, right? our fourth school year. It started in the 2019-2020 school year, that March, everyone, we will never forget that March of 2020. It's, it went into the 2020-2021 school year where many schools were still either remote or hybrid and never, some of them never really fully opened. Last year was the 21-22 school year, truthfully one of the most stressful and 
difficult school years in my 22 years as a school nurse. So here we are in 22, 23. And I have to say, I'm a little concerned about what I see right in front of me. I do not see clear guidelines about what we're walking into. I do not see communities that are coming together overall to protect students' health and well-being. I don't see it. I see a lot of pushback. I see a lot of get over it. I see a lot of denial about the impact of this virus. And so I'm walking into 2022, 23, really concerned about the health and welfare of students, staff, and school communities. This variant, this BA5 variant, and there's others behind it, is incredibly transmissible. So here we are in this kind of weird space right before school starting with very little direction from either the CDC or our local health departments. And so there's a lot of waiting going around. In fact, last week, the CDC was supposed to release their updated guidance. They delayed it. And it could be delayed. I don't know. It could be delayed because monkeypox is on the rise. It could be delayed because there's this new indication about polio uh, in New York City and some of the surrounding suburbs. So there are so many competing public health crises happening simultaneously. Let me not forget school safety and gun violence. Can you blame educators and school nurses for either not returning to school, resigning, retiring. We have a, an education crisis in addition to a mental health crisis, in addition to everything else that is happening. So I don't want to be all doom and gloom, but we can't, you know, pretending that COVID is something we should just learn to live with is, it is we can't do that. It is not in anyone's best interest. There are things that we should still be doing to protect other people's children. You know, I, I, I resonate with a lot of that because I was a principal in 1920 and 2021. And um, it, it's interesting because I know as a principal, I banned the G word at the school when COVID first began to hit. Um, and we, we went fully virtual and that G word was what you just said, guidance. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't have any. Nobody had ever, nobody ever had gone down this road and tried to navigate it. And you know, the interesting enough is, I saw people at that point coming together and trying to come up with solutions. And parents are on board, and it, it was the synergy that in education we hadn't felt in a long time. But I also hear you. Last year was a very challenging. I mean, undescribable experience for educators and school nurses. And I can't imagine, I'm going to be honest, Robin, and say, I can't imagine from a school's nurse, a school nurse perspective. I was very fortunate to have a full-time school nurse in the school that I led. And watching her was mind-boggling on how she was trying to juggle all of these pieces and angry parents because they had to come get their children. And, or I don't have, it, it, you are right. We are in a crisis. So, Let's talk about how did you get into this paces science, paces based work? Because we're in it really thick right now, right? With all of these things going on and even what's happened in the past. How did you begin the entry point for paces and positive adverse childhood experiences and the science behind it within your role as a school nurse? 
Yeah, I love that question. It started in on for personal reasons, like many people, I think, working in in this arena that maybe a, a personal issue happened and, and they began to dig into the idea of, of adverse childhood experiences. Um, and for me, it was very personal because what happened to me in 2009 is that my father died and he died of a hemorrhagic stroke. And if I tell you that my father was buried on the 60th anniversary of the murders of his entire family, you will understand why I had to make sense of what ensued in those 60 years, how, how those 60 years impacted my father, impacted his health, impacted his long-term health outcomes. I have to go back to Camden, New Jersey, where I am a school nurse, and I have been for 22 years. But in 1949, my dad was a 12-year-old boy living in a community that he described as Sesame Street, where everybody knew each other. My grandfather was the pharmacist. They knew, you know, the insurance man, they knew the barber. I mean, it was like Sesame Street until the morning of September 6, 1949, when my father, my grandmother, and my great-grandmother were getting ready to go back to school shopping. A neighbor who had access to weapons, who had just come back from war, who had, un, um, who had grudges, unfounded grudges, who kept lists of people he had grudges against, including my entire family, um, went on a shooting spree. And in a very short period of time, he killed 13 people and wounded three others. He killed my grandfather, the pharmacist, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, um, and seven other people. My father was saved because his mother hid him in a closet. But at the age of 12, he was an orphan. And in those days, there was no bereavement group. There was no support group. There was no therapy. There was nothing but actually keeping things like that a terrible family secret, right? So fast forward, uh, my father was 12. He lived with multiple family members over the years. He did his best. He kept the secret buried very deeply. In fact, buried so deeply that it was truly more of a secret in our family, a shame for him. But he did live a life of productivity. He did marry. He had three children. He loved his family. But my father lived as if any moment the worst thing could possibly happen. And that message was passed on unknowingly to his children, who we passed it on to our children unknowingly. So he died in 2009 of a hemorrhagic stroke. Literally his brain imploded. And I began, and I was already working in Camden at the time. And I began to try to put the pieces of his life together. I learned so much more about my father after he died. I understood him so much more after he died. That's really the tragedy for me, that our relationship was complicated. And it was complicated because he named me for his parents. And he, having that legacy, looking like his mother, he, was, he had this fear around me. So anyway, I worked in Camden, New Jersey. I started digging into adverse childhood experiences 
I'm not sure the day it all made sense to me, but the second I learned about the study, it resonated with me. And then I began to look at myself. I began to look at my students. I began to look at the staff around me, certainly the city that had been traumatized back with my father in 1949. But unimaginably, in 2018, my niece was a Parkland student. On, Jan- on February 14th, 2018. Now, while she was not in the building where the shootings occurred, she knew so many people that died. She knew teachers, friends. She was kept in a closet, much like my father, for two hours until reunification. And while she was waiting to be released, I was on the phone with my sister who was standing behind that yellow tape. You know, you imagine the scene. We've seen it way too many times in school shootings, right? Uh, And we talked and talked and I, I tried to, I was giving my sister updates on CNN, you know, but at the time my sister was standing next to a mom. And as my sister was getting text after text from my niece, this mom was getting nothing. She was hearing nothing. And my sister kept saying, what do you think? What do you think? I said, maybe her phone, maybe she dropped her phone, maybe... Maybe, maybe none of that came to be. She was one of the students of the 17 murdered and 17 injured at Parkland. So that day, that very day, that night, I promised my sister and my niece that I would do everything in my power as a school nurse, as a public health person, as a family member of survivors and victims of two mass shootings now in one family, that I would work tirelessly to solve the problem of gun violence and, and really look at prevention. And I knew the key to that was eliminating, limiting and eliminating exposure to childhood violence for children. Because violence, much like this, this virus of COVID, violence is also a virus. You know, violence spreads much like a, a virus. And so that's the focus of the work that I have really spent the last, especially four and a half years on. Well, um, wow. I mean, that's, that's, that's heavy. And I think it gives the purpose of why you are the relentless school nurse, right? Is that I think when, when we have life experiences, we can respond in a variety of ways. And I think we all enter this work at different points for different reasons, but it all comes back to some of our own experiences. Um, and, and I resonate with a lot what you said. My dad was a Vietnam veteran, and I never understood the complexities of my father, who is still alive, um, until I learned about this work. And then it made sense. And he and I have had so many conversations, and I've only heard his story uh, one time. And he broke a podium when he was telling the story because he had so much pent up. We know the bot, we know the the memories are held in our body. And um, I said, you have to get it down so I can so I can share this story when you're gone. But I think what I hear you saying is school safety means a lot of things. And, and you just went through a lot of situations that you as a nurse, that I as a educator and practitioner, have managed. So what does, when, when you say school safety, what does that mean to you from your perspective as a school nurse? 
Yeah, well, feeling safe and being safe are two very different things, first of all. And that's kind of the key. And in education, you'll appreciate, and I'm sure you've heard this term many times, we have to remember to Maslow before we bloom, right? So the bottom line is what's happening in school? Are our kids housed? Do they have food? Do they have safe spaces to be? How are they feeling? And that includes the school staff too. We have to make sure that safety is at the the center, student safety and also staff safety is at the center of everything we do. Because right now, it feels it feels very unsafe in many spaces in this country, public spaces, private spaces. Where are we truly safe? Our safety has been invaded by by the you know, by gun violence. I mean, if you can't go to a Fourth of July parade, you know, I, I could list all the places that have been impacted. Right. So. So I like to to focus on what we can do as a school community, because we have to be healing centered. You know, as ACEs is very important, but let's be truthful. Everybody has experienced something. So there's there's a um, in in nursing, in public health, they call it universal precautions, much like personal protective equipment. Why don't we use universal precautions and imagine that everybody that we come in contact with, especially our children, have experienced something? Does it really matter which of the ACEs they've experienced? Absolutely not. What matters is, are we creating loving, healing, accepting, inclusive environments that respect human dignity that are that focus on restorative justice practices that acknowledge the structural racism that has deepened the divide in this country are we acknowledging that and here i am a white nurse from suburban new jersey who does not look like the students and families i serve but yet my connection to that city goes back to 1949 and so you know, I I go to my job every day walking in that cultural humility, but also feeling deeply connected to that city. And so it, it is very layered and very complicated. Um, and and that's why we have to look at the much bigger picture of turning education on its head. What are what do we want to create for our students? We want them to be in healing centered environments. You know, I, I, I go back to uh, on this podcast, we talked to uh, Melissa Merritt, who is the uh, CEO of Prevent Child Abuse Americas. And, and, and we dug in deeply around a lot of the things that you said, right? And when we look at the historical context of how we treat kids in general, um, the mistreatment of kids is just have been tolerated, Right. And we go through these processes. And as a practitioner in a school, I realized that what we were doing to kids isn't what we should be doing for kids, right? And with kids. And so I think it comes down to really digging into some of the practices that we've used in education for literally centuries that have not changed. When our kids are not changing, right? The culture of which we live is changing. What we tolerate is changing. You know, I have been in uh, active shooter drill as a principal where I was locked in a abandoned school. Um, And I can't believe I'm even saying this out loud, but this this happened. I was locked in a abandoned school. Um, 
they made us put these masks on with this mesh in the front. They told us that it was going to be a simulation. They began to fire dead rounds into the air where you could see the fire. They pushed us into a room and we had to barricade ourselves into that room while they shot airsoft guns at us. So they were shooting projectiles at us. And I thought this, this was several years ago. I mean, this was like six or seven years ago. And I thought this is where we are right now. Mm-hmm. is that we are in response to these major crises in our country by simply having kids barricade themselves into rooms as practice. And yet you've got kids, just like you said, Robin, that are coming to school with dysregulated nervous systems, with already bearing the weight of life experiences, and then we tell them school's not safe, right? Right. And I think there's so much that weighs in that, in that, you know, we say it's safe, come on in, trust us. But then we have the all of these things that we do or don't do to keep kids safe. What's your experience in that? And how does that resonate with you in that what can we do better, right? Like what what where is that that medium of how do we balance it? So you bring up a really excellent point. I mean school safety is an unregulated $3 billion industry that is bringing uh, hardening school apparatus that makes, that is not evidence-based, but yet it appears like schools are doing something because they are spending gobs and gobs of money on things that do not help. I mean, just last week, there were two major newspaper articles. One was talking about schools in Ohio that are training teachers less than 25 hours to allow them to bring weapons to school to protect their students. The other was about a school district in, um, I think it was a, a suburb of Asheville, where they decided to use some of their school safety money to purchase AR-15s to lock in the closets of all of the school offices. That is not responsive. That is reactive. It's not evidence-based. It's dangerous. And active shooter drills, hyper-realistic active shooter drills, like the one you just described, are so traumatizing to our students and our staff because we know the brain does not know, even if you tell me it's a drill, but you create that kind of scary hyper sensitive environment, my brain is going to think it's real. My amygdala is going to fire. I am going to be in fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. And I, I am a grown adult. We're doing these things to our youngest children. I was involved in an active shooter drill. I will never forget it. It was not announced. They used the sound of gunfire. They found an app on their phone that sounded like gunfire. That's how they called the drill for a preschool. And I said to the preschool director after it was over, I had to bring myself off the ceiling. I was so angry. We cannot do this to our children. And the the director said, they're used to it. Mm -hmm. And I said, 
whatever happens outside of this building, we don't have control over, but we have control over the environment that we provide for these children. I recognize that some of our children are going to sleep at night, unfortunately, hearing drive-bys, hearing fighting, hearing gun violence. We don't need to bring it into our school. And so that kind of you know, there's lack of a standard response protocol. That's what we need. You were a principal. Did you fill your buildings during a fire drill with smoke and debris and make people jump over them to get out of the building? That's what this is. It makes no sense. Train the adults for sure. Don't terrify them. But if you're doing active shooter drills, they have to be developmentally appropriate. What about your special needs children? They have to... They have to meet the needs of all of our children. I'm not saying don't be don't be prepared, but not like this. I agree 100 percent. And I I do want to make sure that I'm clear that when the drill happened, it was just for principals. There weren't kids involved. And I will tell you what you just said is exactly how I operated. We did it as a normal drill. We prepped the kids before we told them it was a drill. We actually did some mindfulness time before so they could prepare themselves. We got them breathing strategies. And those are just practices we used on a normal daily to day basis. And we did and we would have unannounced, but it was a calm process. Right. And let's be honest, uh, Robin, if it was a real tragedy like that. Like you are all everybody's going to go into fight and flight, right? Everyone. And and I think about the Vivaldi and what just happened there. And I've watched what's happened to the principal. And I just think I can't imagine. I There is nothing about me that can wrap my brain around what that must Feel be like. like. And now she's working already in the in the central office. And I'm thinking I can't even imagine going back. But, you know, we have talked about so much and some of the things we haven't talked about are actually school nursing, right? And the role of school nursing. And, and I do want to make sure we swing back to this idea of well-being. Um, and when we're talking about kids in school and well-being, because I hear more than ever college and career ready and academic gloss and college and career ready, but very rarely do I ever hear, let's talk about the well-being of our students. So talk about their their long-term well-being and plan for them as, you know, productive adults. Uh, and I think that from a from a school nurse's perspective, you get to see all of it. You get to see the kids that come in with the stomach aches that really aren't symptoms other than that imp- rep- response to stress, right, and trauma. You get to see all these layers. And unfortunately, um, in our country, we have not identified the true impact of a school nurse in an individual school full time. Unfortunately, it's spread out amongst multiple schools. It's part time. It's not valued. So when we come back from the break, that's what I want to get into, because I think we've got to get into this role that school nurses can and do play, because there are districts like mine that I came from where I had a full time nurse and just that simple impact on the greater good of not just the school, but the community on how it plays out. So we'll be right back from the break and we will talk about that here in just a moment. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. In this polarizing age of misinformation, it is critical to examine the lessons of the past on history, culture, and trauma. Ingrid Cochran, CEO of Paces Connection, and her guests 
will explore historical trauma and outline how our collective past shades our perception of today's world and our shared experiences. In this podcast, we will examine the impact of past atrocious cultural events and the impact of the systemic trauma of racism and poverty on the human experience. Ingrid and her guest will also outline what is needed for our collective healing. Please join us for History, Culture, and Trauma, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency Podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your life. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran. Well, before the break, um, Robin Cogan and I were talking a lot about a lot of things. And and so just to kind of recap, we we talked about the last few years and, and entering into this new school year and, and the impact of COVID. Um, and we were digging into the impact of gun violence uh, and how it plays out in schools. And some of you might be thinking, what does that have to do with a school nurse, right? Um, and I think that's now that we return and we've we've covered so much about Robin's personal story and and my experience as a principal. But what I think we we want to do is really talk about that. What is this role of a school nurse in a in a school today? Because it's not like uh, it's not like the 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 old films that you see with the nurse with the white hat that just puts band-aids on kids' knees. It's changed a lot, right? And we're actively uh, educators and school nurses and school counselors and everybody in the school is actively, honestly, fighting against a lot of pushback for the wellness and the well-being of our kids. So, Robin, welcome back. And let's talk about that. How does the school nurse, where does it fit in? All of these things fit in in the role of the school nurse. Right. So I, I want to frame this, though, by saying let's understand across the country the presence of a school nurse is very different. So 25% of schools in this country have no school nurse at all, none. So all of this lands on the shoulders of the administrators, the secretaries, maybe some volunteers. Pretty scary, isn't it? In 35% of 
of schools around this country. So that's 60% of schools. There may be a part-time school nurse. So there is only a full-time school nurse in 40% of schools in this country. So what does that say about how we value health and wellness and well-being for our students and our school community? In a few years ago, I think it was in 2015 or 2016, our National Association of School Nurses released a new framework for 21st century school nursing practice. It is evidence-based, it's comprehensive, and it really looks at the full scope of what school nurses do. I like to say that school nurses are the chief wellness or chief well-being officer in your school. And if you are not using us to our fullest capacity, to the full scope of our practice, you are really missing out on what our students need. The other thing is, let's remember that children, babies who survived you know, who wouldn't have survived 20 years ago um, as a preemie with many, many chronic medical conditions are now thriving and doing well and coming to our schools. We are, we, as a, as a public school, we have to provide education for all students. Schools are no longer sending out their special needs or medically complex students to outside out of district placement. Number one, it's very expensive, but it's not happening. So these children are also part of our school community and rightfully so that we that we provide them with an education so our the the scope of our work has expanded enormously you know the things there are there are five principles that we work on care coordination is one example i mean we do case management chronic disease management direct care we we provide education in our schools we should be part of interdisciplinary teams we do counseling we we are very involved in student care plans you know, and in transitioning plans, transitioning uh, either to the next level or to college or to independent living. You know, we are leaders in our schools, but are you using us this way? We are experts in advocacy. We are change agents. We are lifelong learners. You know, we provide so many services to the community through public health, accessing care, you know, we really focus on cultural competency, disease prevention. Look what's happened with COVID. We environmentally scan our buildings. Um, we focus on health equity, health promotion and outreach. We are population health nurses. We look at risk reduction. We do screenings and referrals and follow-ups. I mean, social determinants of health are the things that we are most skilled at. We understand the, the importance of surveillance. I mean, COVID should have shined a light on the importance and the, and the urgency of having a school nurse in every building and every school every day. And, and so this is just some of the framework for our practice that I encourage all school nurses, if you're lucky enough to have one in your building, to blow a poster up of our framework because when people really read it, they have no idea of the true scope of our work. And I think you're right. I think that the underutilization of those nurses that are in schools, right? And, and I think I was blessed and I'm going to give her a shout out. Nurse Teresa Hook uh, was the school nurse in my in the school that I led. She was a school nurse there for over 20 years. Um, she was a pioneer in school nursing in, in, in Nashville, Tennessee. She ran a uh, an actual clinic out of the school 
in the eighties and the nineties and was, was, was just did amazing work and was the cornerstone of the community, a familiar face for literally multiple generations of kids. And what you said is what I saw her do day to day, everything from how to appropriately wash your hands to having the conversation with the little boys about wearing deodorant, right? I mean, it was all of it. And right, she she retired right before the pandemic. And I saw a brand new nurse walk into the school in the midst of a pandemic. And I was blown away by her ability to jump in. And I shouldn't have been because what I just heard is that's what you're trained to do. That's what we're trained to do. And, and unfortunately, you know, our, so one of the reasons I started my blog, the relentless school nurse is that I, so I could tell stories from my school health office, but other people's school health offices. My goal has been to amplify the voice and the work of school nursing and, and for people to really understand the scope of our practice, you give some really great examples, you know, um, but I, I want to tell you one story that overlaps COVID and gun violence and school safety, because uh, I know this, this podcast is going very, very quickly, but I have to tell you, first of all, I also use social media as part of my school nursing practice, because I believe in health education and I am out on social media um, as a school nurse, providing information. Anyway, one night I got a late night message, a private message from someone who I'd never met in person, only through Twitter. And the message was this. It said, Robin, I only have one child left. What should I do about school? The message came from a mom who had two children at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Her daughter, Anna Grace, was six years old and her son Isaiah was eight. Anna Grace was killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School. And Isaiah, who had been eight, was turning 16 during COVID and, her, his, and, and mom, Nelba, had to decide whether or not to send her son back to school. And she reached out to a school nurse that she had never met because she understood that number one, I had a deep knowledge of the impact of gun violence, but she also understood that I was a school nurse during COVID and she trusted me to look at her school's return to work plan for her son to make a decision on whether or not he should go back to school. That's the power of school nursing. That's the power also of social media, you know? And so it, when I think about that story, she did send her son back to school, by the way but feeling much more confident after we were able to go over the mitigation strategies her school was using. But I guess what I, what I really want people to understand is that if you don't have a school nurse in your school, advocate for one. If you don't have a full-time school nurse in your school, go to those board meetings and say, we must have a full-time school nurse. Because I'll tell you, prior to COVID, school nurses were spending up to 35% of our time on mental health issues prior to COVID. We have now experienced a collective trauma in this country. And it is not only the children, it is the adults, it is the parents and all caregivers. Do you know that I want to get the data right, right? But I want to say over 200,000 children have lost a parent or a caregiver to COVID. We are also dealing with grief, complex grief. We are dealing with long COVID. You know, families have lost jobs. Children have lost 
caregivers, loved ones, we are in a crisis. And so we have to come together as a community and say, where are our values? Do we value the health and well-being of the future generations of this country? And if we do, truthfully, there needs to be a school nurse in every building every day. How can this even be a question at this moment? Well, and I think we answer that question by our practices. I mean, we do. Um, and I think, again, it goes back to previous episodes on here about how we how we how we perceive and value kids right there in children there. There were laws against the treatment of animals before there was laws against the treatment of children. And I think, again, I what you just said is so powerful. This is where the local context and local level play, play such a big role. I have seen advocate after advocate talking about increasing resource officers in schools. I'm not against it necessarily, but I would say there's other areas in which schools need before they need that, right? And this is one of them, right? I mean, school nurses are one of them. And when you talk about the health and wellness teams, that is a that is a very real thing that happens in a lot of schools who do have the resources, who can then have a plan for the health and well-being of students. But for those communities that don't, that doesn't even exist. No, and, and, and we're it's we're it's spitting band-aids, putting something together. And and where school nurses, listen, COVID has added an additional full-time job onto an additional full-time job. And that has not been really recognized to the full extent that it needs to be. We have to have a health services team in each building. Right now, there was a law in New Jersey that they are requesting um. I want to get the term right. I always, I always like to block it because it upsets me so much that they use this term, but a threat assessment team in every school. So you're going to put a threat assessment team in every school, but yet you don't have a health services team in every school. Where are our values? What are we doing? What does that say about how we care for our children? So it does get us charged up. It does keep fuels my passion to keep going. I appreciate being able to have these conversations because sometimes school nurses feel fearful about speaking out. But as you are, Matthew, I am also a disruptor. We have to bring these things to the surface. We cannot pretend that we are everything's status quo. It's not. Well, and I think, too, that there are things we can do, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that that's that's what i would love to hear from you you know in in your ideal world or in what do you see as potential possibilities that could drive to better outcomes for this work and especially in highlighting identifying the impact of school nurses and what that looks like over time i mean what does that look like to you as someone who is passionate about this work who does this work who works alongside people doing this work what is that what does the future look like what does the outcome look like um, to you if you could make that decision right so the outcome would be that we would have an infrastructure that there would be a sustainable infrastructure of a health services team in every building that it would not be a solo school nurse by herself or himself that it would be a team of people we can work interprofessionally right we need to collaborate with our school counselors with our school psychologists we need to address the needs of our children and and 
you know, children who are dysregulated are never going to learn. They're never going to learn no matter how many times you tell them to calm down. That doesn't work. It doesn't work with adults and it doesn't work with children. We have to, you know, Maslow before you bloom. Where are we? Let's evaluate where we are, what pieces are missing to this huge puzzle and how we can get them in place. It sounds like you had an amazing school with tremendous resources and you use them well, but there is an equity across this country that is unconscionable, unconscionable. We have buildings, we have sick buildings. You know, we can't, when we're sending kids back to school during COVID and we can't even understand the importance of keeping the air quality in our buildings. We have kids that are going to school hungry. We have kids that don't have access to the internet. We have kids that don't have tablets. What, you know, let's look at what is equity. That would make a huge difference. Can we, can we share our resources in a way that all children are valued? My children, had a much different educational experience than the children that I care for. That is not, that is so wrong in this day and age. You know, that's where the anger comes from. That's where honestly, the, this, the sense of, of not having equity, we, we cannot, we have to say, stop. We must reassess where we are as a country. And unfortunately at this moment, we have never been more divided and I have grave concerns about moving forward. I have grave concerns truly about returning to school, but there are things that we can do with the resources that we have, but we have to have certain pieces in place for this to make sense. You know, we need support systems. We need school nurses. We need school nursing supervisors. We need to have teams of people who will be able to help children who are dysregulated because that's what we're seeing the need for caring for these children has increased tenfold because of COVID, you know? And we have to be honest about it. We're, people, you know, it's very strange what's happened recently. Like you don't, you don't just get over almost three and a half years of a pandemic coupled with, you know, a, a, a reckoning on racism that has been brewing forever right? These, these things are happening now because we have to address them. No more putting your heads in the sand. And education at this moment is not working. It's not working. You know, I, I'm glad you brought up, especially this equity piece, because I, I did a little research and I did look at the demographic of school nurses. And, you know, I find it interesting that it almost parallels the demographic of teachers, right? That um, we're 94% white. are female. Right. Um, 70 percent are white. Um, only 11 to almost 12 percent are black or African-American. And, and it's even lower than that for uh, other communities, Hispanic community, Asian community. Right. These are these are big problems, systematic problems. And I know the historical context of teachers and why it is the way it is. Right. When we desegregated, we pushed all of the teachers of color out to make room for white teachers. And we have never been able to recover. And then we look back and go, why aren't there teachers of color in education? Well, it's really easy to trace it back and figure out why that's happening, not to mention the systematic pieces that have put in place for certifications and all of that. But. Talk about the importance of that, because you you said it yourself, and I know how that feels. I was a white male principal in predominantly black and brown school, and 
I, I got to know the community. I trusted them. They trust like it, it was just amazing experience. But I also understand my privilege and understood where I stood in those spaces. And I was there to listen, not to tell. Um, right. Talk. I mean, what how does that play an impact on nurses? And, and do you know? Because I don't know. Um, you know, what is the historical and if you don't be like, I don't know, but what is the historical context? Why is this the way it is? Nursing has historically been very white. 90%. I believe the statistic is 90% of school nurses are white. That's the most recent one that I saw. Uh, it's also true. We also trend older. So there's going to be lots of room for new people. So that's a plus. Um, but just like many other occupations, nursing is expensive to train and, and historically, Nurses of color have been, or people who wanted to go into nursing of color have been marginalized and left out of those opportunities. You know, um, it, it, it is it is shameful. It's a shameful past of this country. It is based in, you know, white supremacy and like many other issues in this country. But yet it we need to reflect the people and the communities that we serve. It only makes sense that that should be. So moving forward, we have to create pathways for, for people, for young people to have, to become interested in the nursing profession and then support their education. Why do we put up these barriers if we supposedly don't want to have nurses who reflect their communities? And why are we putting up barriers to begin with? It would be it would it would not be an easy fix, but it would certainly be a fix if we provided proper education, if the educational system was had equity in it and and our students had the ability, if they were interested in nursing, to find a pathway into a nursing program and the, and that these huge walls of barriers were not thrown up to them. I mean, right now, I feel badly for anybody who needs to get a four-year degree. It is outrageously expensive with very little support, you know, and, and this, this promise of, of student loan forgiveness hasn't come through at this moment. I mean, I, I feel terrible for young people who are going in to uh, looking at colleges right now. It's, it is daunting, daunting. So why did we marginalize community colleges? Why did we stop the associate degree nursing program or try to limit it? Why did we make the entry level to nursing only a bachelor's degree where not everybody has access to getting a bachelor's degree? Those are questions that we really need to ask ourselves hard questions take an honest accounting did you only want white people in nursing because that's what it sounds like that's what it looks like mm. those are questions we have to ask and we have to ask ourselves and we have to ask uh you know in every space that we're in and i think that's the power of this cross-sector work and it's why we talk to so many people on this podcast is that we want to bring this awareness to the impact of history, culture, and trauma in, in everything that we do is that there are lines that trace back to why it is the way it is, right? And it doesn't mean that it has to be the way it continues to be unless right. we remain silent and do not and aren't relentless like yourself and have these conversations and begin to ask questions at the local level, at the state level, and at the federal level saying, why does it have to be this way? So we only have a few minutes left, and I would love to hear you because I know there's so many out there. 
What would be one bit of advice information you would tell a brand new school nurse who is starting the 2023 school year? Circle your wagons, get your people, find your, find the people that you can lean in with. This is going to be a bumpy ride. Join the national association of school nurses, join your state association, join your county association, go to as many trainings as you possibly can. There's a lot of free information out there, but you don't have to do this alone and do not tolerable, tolerate intolerable working conditions. Speak up, get support, get help. Don't tolerate people cursing at you and yelling at you. We don't deserve that. We're trying our best to care for other people's children. And so I want to say to parents, we're on the same team with you. We are not your adversaries. We are trying our best to keep everybody's children safe. And that may sometimes look like your child needs to be sent home for a period of time. We are sorry, but this is the best that we can do because we are in a very unsafe time. And I think that's amazing advice. And and I'm going to leave all educators, especially administrators, if you have a school nurse in your building, please see them for the expertise that they have, get them involved, ask them to be involved. And I've learned that all I had to do is open a door and every school nurse would walk right in. And, and they say have, thank you. Say thank you. Oh we my goodness. Appreciate you. It goes a long way. You know, we did a time without a school nurse and, and during COVID. And once we got a new school nurse, she wasn't new to the profession. To say I was appreciative was an understatement. Um, it, it, it made us all safer. It made us all more um, impactful in our roles and positions. And there was a synergy there that, that just made everything operate more effectively. School nurses are experts in our buildings. And if they're not, please advocate for your space, your area, your local context, because school nurses play a major role in the school and community environment. This isn't just about a school. This is about the ripple effect and the impact it has on the community at large. And, and so school nurses are also an investment in student achievement. And we can't forget that either. Absolutely. And we see it, right? We, we know that there is that correlation and there's research. Robin, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for talking to me. Um, I think the listeners could probably hear both of our passions for this and feel our, uh, our energy because it is important and every aspect of a school is important, whether it's the school nurse, whether it's the teacher, whether it's a principal, whether it's a paraprofessional and the parents and the children and the community, it's all imperative to this work and moving this work forward. So Robin, thank you for spending time with us. And for those of you listening, we will... See you next week. Appreciate you, Matthew. Appreciate you as well. Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.